Welcome to the Talking Leaves podcast. I'm your host, Miss Kyra, and we are returning for episode 5 of our mini-series about Homer's The Odyssey. In the last few episodes, we've closely read the first few pages of book 1. In this episode, we'll look at the last few pages of book 1. These are the pages where Athena, the goddess of wisdom and warcraft, disguised as a family friend named Mentes, gives Telemachus some much-needed pluck, courage, to stand up to the suitors and his fellow Ithacans who, up to this point, have done nothing to stop the suitors from taking advantage of Odysseus's time away. Let's see what the goddess of wisdom and war strategy has to say. At the end of last episode, we reviewed who Athena, or rather Mentes, which is who she disguises herself as, really is. We speculated that maybe Mentes really is a family friend that Odysseus would know, and Athena is impersonating him. Or, on the other hand, maybe she's just making this all up, making up Mentes as a person up, as an excuse to come and give Telemachus some much-needed words of wisdom. Regardless, Athena tells her story and the most important part of who she is and why she's here to Telemachus. She's here because she claims to have heard word of Odysseus returning. And she also gives reasons for Odysseus not coming home yet. He must be detained somewhere. But not to worry, little man. He will not long now be away from Ithaca. In what goes unsaid here, what we know as the reader that Athena does not tell Telemachus, he won't be away long now that I've convinced and guilted the other gods, particularly Zeus, into helping Odysseus get home. As we said last episode, Athena reinforces Telemachus's hope that his father will come home. And as we look at the top of page 8, we see her suggest that Odysseus is a prisoner. Though he be in chains, he'll scheme a way to come. He can do anything. Clearly, Odysseus is Athena's boy, and she will ensure he breaks free of those chains. She sent Hermes the messenger to make sure Calypso lets him go. Toward the end of this little pep talk from Athena, she says, But tell me this now, make it clear to me. You must be, by your looks, Odysseus's boy. And she explains again how she knew Odysseus. We took meals like this together many a time before he sailed for Troy with all the lords of Argos in the ships. I have not seen him since, nor has he seen me. In other words, you must be Odysseus's son, as if she didn't know this already, because as a goddess, she did know, but as Mentes, who has never met Telemachus before, she hasn't. She needs to pretend to not really know who Telemachus is. But she also clearly tells him, you have your father, that great warrior in you, which, you know, is really nice to hear, whether or not you know that this is a compliment from a goddess, especially because we know that Telemachus is clearly missing this absentee father figure. He feels alone and not really a man ready for responsibilities or, or taking charge yet. Just wait till Athena is through with this little pep talk. Telemachus, after receiving these really nice compliments, sticks his foot in his mouth. An odd expression, yet perfectly fitting here. He, in essence, throws Athena's compliments back in her face and offends her. <clears throat> he thoughtfully says, Friend, let me put it in the plainest way. My mother says I am his son. I know surely not. Who has known his own engendering? I wish at least I had some happy man as father, growing old in his own house, but unknown death and silence are the fate of him that, since you ask, they call my father. 
Let's break this down sentence by sentence and see how truly insulting this is. First, let me be blunt, he says, let me be real. Second, my mom tells me that Odysseus is my father, but I don't know for sure, which means I don't trust this. Who knows if my mom tells the truth? Three, who has known their own procreation? Who really knows who one's parents really are? Let's get philosophical, Telemachus. How can anyone ever really know who the parents are? I wasn't there, tool. Four, I wish at least I could know my father and that whoever he was. I knew he was happy, growing old in his home. I'd rather have that than have a dad who is not here and who's likely dead, unknown, or just gone somewhere, like Odysseus, who they tell me is my dad. Every single thing Athena just said is thrown out by Telemachus. It doesn't matter that he looks like Odysseus or that his mother was married to Odysseus and that there's absolutely no reason to doubt his mother or anyone else's word that he is, indeed, Odysseus's son. Telemachus just wants a pity party. Boo, I haven't seen my dad. I guess I just can't really know who he is. I'm probably just a nobody's son. Boo. Athena, quite shortly, shuts this down. The gods decreed no lack of honor in this generation. Such is the son of Penelope bore in you. In other words, this generation has honor. You are an honorably born child. You are Penelope and Odysseus's true son. And shut up about it, why don't ya? Then she moves swiftly on to asking, What gathering? What feast is this? Why is everyone here? A wedding? Revel at the expense of all? Why are you having a party and is everyone paying for it? She knows the answer. Not that, I think. Ah, how arrogant they seem, these gluttons, making free here in your house, a sensible man would blush to be among them. Clearly they're eating the food off of someone else's table. They're not paying for this. She calls them gluttons, which means someone who is habitually greeting and who voraciously or excessively eats and drinks. She's saying, look at these pigs. They should be ashamed. At the bottom of page 8, going on to page 9, Telemachus explains who exactly these gluttonous men are. Our house was always princely, a great house, as long as he of whom we speak, aka Odysseus, remained here. But evil days the gods have brought upon it, making him vanish as they have, so strangely. With Odysseus gone, strangely just disappeared, it has caused problems. Were his death known, I could not feel such pain. If he had died of wounds in Trojan country or in the arms of friends after the war, they would have made a tomb for him, the Achaeans, and I should have all honor as his son. Instead, the whirlwinds got him, and no glory. This means, if we knew that he had died, then we could honor his death and mourn him. But as it is, we don't know what happened. We're stuck. He has disappeared and not allowed us to move forward. We cannot gain any honor from his death or from his return. We're in limbo, and as such, no glory, no respect. As a result, Telemachus doesn't gain honor or respect from his father's life or achievements. Instead, he gains troubles and tears, and not for him, Odysseus, alone. The gods have laid such other burdens on me. Namely, the suitors. For now the lords of the islands of Dulacon and Same, wooded Zakithnos, and rocky Ithaca's young lords as well are here courting my mother, and they use our house as if it were a house to plunder. Local lords, and from, from Ithaca and from other close-by islands, are here to win the hand of his mother. They treat their house like one to plunder, one to use wrongly, to steal from, to pillage. And we see from his next words that Penelope, his mother, is in an extremely precarious position. 
she has to be careful because she dare not spurn them, even though she doesn't want to marry them or choose one. She doesn't want to anger them either. And as a result of her putting off making a decision, they eat their way through all we have, and when they will, they can demolish me. They will kill Telemachus when they can. They will get rid of him. Athena, disturbed and troubled, says, Ah, bitterly you need Odysseus then. High time he came back to engage these upstarts. I wish we saw him standing, helmeted there in the doorway, holding shield and spear, looking the way he did when I first knew him. In a way, we can interpret this as perhaps some foreshadowing. This is what I see, Athena says, what I want to have happen. To see Odysseus standing there, gazing upon the suitors, judging them, and getting ready to condemn them for taking what isn't theirs, for abusing the hospitality of his family. She wants him. So either Mentes is saying this, or Athena herself is really saying this. And you can tell, they've angered a goddess, and you can bet there's going to be some reckoning. And in the next few lines, she describes when she, or Mentes, first saw him. She says, at our house where he drank and feasted after he left Ephira, homeward bound from a visit to the son of Memorus, Elos. Elos being the name of the son that he visited in the town Memorus. He took a fast ship down the gulf that time for a fatal drug to dip his arrows in and poison the bronze tips, but young Elos turned him away, fearing the god's wrath. What this means is Athena was seeking a poisonous herb to dip his bronze arrows into, but this man, Elos, denied him the right to that herb. He didn't want to anger the gods. So Odysseus turned towards Mentes' father, who gave it, for he loved Odysseus well. And then Athena says, I wish these men could meet the man of those days, someone terrifying who will seek out poison just to get rid of his enemies. Even if it angers the gods, someone who's willing to risk it, they'd know their fortune quickly. A cold bed, which is a metaphor for death, clearly. She's very angry. It lays on the gods' knees whether he can return and force a reckoning in his own house or not. It is up to the gods whether he can return home and bring these gluttonous wolf pack of a group to justice. But because she is a goddess, we know that the gods will likely let this justice happen. It's almost like, is that a threat? No, it's a promise type moment. On page 10, Athena finally gets to the point what she's really doing here, and she tells Telemachus what he needs to do. If I were you, I should take steps to make these men disperse. Listen now and attend to what I say. At daybreak, call the islanders to assembly and speak your will, and call the gods to witness. The suitors must go scattering to their homes. In sum, Telemachus needs to stand up to the suitors, and he needs to pronounce that they need to leave in front of everyone on the island, and in front of the gods. Tell them, with the gods witnessing you do this, that they have worn out their welcome and they need to leave. Why is calling the gods to witness important? Because one, a goddess is telling him to do it. So if he does it, he's listening to the gods. Remember Zeus's rant about mortals not listening to the gods and what happens when they don't? Yeah. Second, this is important because if the gods witness and then the suitors don't listen, then the gods will be angry at the suitors, which definitely doesn't bode well for them. She goes on to say, then here's a course for you if you agree. 
get a sound craft afloat with 20 oars, which means he would need 20 men to sail with him, to row the oars, and go abroad for news of your lost father. Perhaps a traveler's tale or rumored fame issued from Zeus abroad in the world of men. Talk to the noble sage at Pylos, Nestor, his name, and then go to Menelaus, the red-haired king at Sparta, the last man home of all the Achaeans. She wants him to travel and look for word of his father. The fact that she knows that there likely isn't a whole ton of recent news is not the point. The point is Telemachus will become a man of action. People will learn about him and hear of his word and him being Odysseus' son as his own man. The Greeks believed firmly in living a grandiose life, a life bigger than life, the epitome of YOLO. Until now, Telemachus has daydreamed as a boy of someone else saving the day. By giving him this task, he becomes his own savior in a way. He is away from the suitors who may want to demolish him, and he's away becoming a man of his own. Athena further says, if you should learn of your father is alive and coming home, you could hold out for a year. So the suitors won't try to kill you or marry your mother for at least a year if they did learn that word existed that Odysseus was coming home. They would have to be patient or fear his wrath. Or if you learn that he is dead and gone, then you could come back to your own dear country and raise a mound for him and burn his gear. You could create a tomb for him. You could bury him. With all the funeral honors, do the man and give your mother to another husband. If you learn that he's dead, you can mourn him, gain honor from knowing that he's dead and celebrating his life, and you can marry off your mother. A little interesting here, why does Penelope have to be married off? Is this something about their culture? I have no idea. Maybe she's too young, too beautiful, too wealthy to escape the notice of men. It doesn't sound like she has a say in this situation, so kind of tells us a little bit about the cultural expectations, and it's pretty messed up in our 21st century view. When you have done all of this, Athena continues to say, or seen it done, it will be time to ponder concerning these contenders in your house, how you should kill them, outright or by guile. You need not bear this insolence of theirs. You are a child no longer. In other words, once you've accomplished this task and grown up a little bit, you can come home and decide if the suitors, these contenders, are still here, how to kill them. There isn't another option given. It's not, you can decide to send them away. No, if they're still here, they're going to die. And you can decide how you want to kill them. Straight up or sneaky. You will kill them. The question is simply of how. So we can fully and finally, with absolute certainty, say that Athena hates these suitors. She is waiting for their death. She also convinces Telemachus by saying that killing them will gain him honor by righting the wrong that they are doing, by making them pay for their dishonor, just like Orestes did. Refer back to that conversation that Zeus had earlier, complaining about the mortals, Agathos, Agamemnon, Orestes, and this reference will make sense. With that, she says she must leave because he is tall and well set up, which means that he's strong, he can take care of himself, and he just needs to be brave so men in times to come will speak of you respectfully. He needs to earn his own honor instead of waiting for someone else to give it to him. On page 11, Telemachus and Athena go back and forth a bit. 
Telemachus wants to give her a gift. He wants this guest, Mentes, to stay, rest, hang out for a bit. Quite honestly, he seems lonely. This new person, this stranger, seems like a better friend to him than anyone else. The only friend who doesn't want something from him, but for him. In the next stanza, Athena declines. She cannot be delayed, and she will accept a gift, but in return, he shall have a choice gift in exchange. Hmm, could this possibly be Odysseus returning home? That would definitely be the choicest gift. And then Athena leaves, and she puts new spirit in him, a new dream of his father clearer now, so that he marveled to himself, divining, figuring out, that a god had been his guest. And then like God and then godlike in his turn, he joined the suitors. Athena gave him courage, made him have a clearer vision of his father, so much so that he realized that who he had just been speaking to, this guest, was actually a god in disguise, and made him a bit godlike in return, gave him power so that he could tell the suitors to shove off. But before we get to that point when Telemachus tells the suitors to get out, we hear the famous minstrel singing the bitter song, the homecoming of the Achaeans. Remember, the Achaeans are the Greeks, which means everyone except for Odysseus's homecoming is being talked about in this song. And in her high room, careful Penelope. So first time we're getting a clear description of her, she's described as careful. I wonder what we could make of that. Why careful? How does it fit into what we know about Greeks' expectations of women? How else could we construe that word? And when we see her come down the long stairs of her house, this beautiful lady with two maids attending her, two chaperones, two other women to protect her honor perhaps, or to see her to her needs, and she hears the song and looks on through her shining veil and through her tears, she spoke to the noble minstrel. And Penelope's first and nearly only words are Femios, which is the minstrel's name. Tell other spells or other songs you know, high deeds of gods and heroes. Let these men hear some other. Let them sit silent and drink their wine, but sing no more of this bitter tale that wears my heart away. She clearly doesn't want to hear this song of everyone except for her husband returning home. And no wonder she says, it opens in me again the wound of longing for one incomparable, meaning Odysseus, ever in my mind, his fame that everyone knows. This song reminds her of the husband who she will always love, who is literally known by everyone, and who no one can compare to. And she says this all in front of the suitors, reminding them, carefully, she is taken reminding them she is waiting for Odysseus and that they cannot live up to him. And as bittersweet and carefully crafted as this speech, perhaps that's why she's careful, Penelope. She's strategic. Telemachus, with new spirit from Athena, tells her to pipe down. Now, I want to share his words and try not to color your perception too much, but this part just really irks me. He acts suddenly like a responsible man, but to tell your mom to suck it up, when he was just complaining and whining to a stranger that he didn't believe or know who his dad really was, he just wished for some old happy dad to be home. Get out of here. Anyways, 
Telemachus says, Mother, why do you grudge our dear menstrual joy of song wherever his thought may lead? Poets are not to blame, but Zeus, who gives what fate he pleases to adventurous men. In other words, Telemachus is telling his mom, just let the man sing. He isn't to blame for Odysseus not returning home. You just need to listen. But you must nerve yourself and try to listen. Odysseus was not the only one at Troy never to know the day of his homecoming. Others, how many others, lost their lives? This is the one part of his speech that I do see the wisdom in. Odysseus is not the only one who didn't return. Many died in battle. Many died on their journey home. Just like the nearly 200 or so men that were traveling with Odysseus who somehow wind up dead. Probably these men here want to hear word of their fathers who didn't return and the honor that they had in battle. I get it. Maybe he's not so bad after all. And she gazed in wonder and withdrew. She's impressed with her son for telling her to suck it up, which more than anything goes to show how baby-like he's potentially been before. He has never spoken up before. She sees the clear wisdom in his words, but she falls to weeping for Odysseus. And Athena casts a sweet sleep on her eyes. Athena gave her a big dose of goddess-quality NyQuil and put her right to sleep. Nice. But also, really? Just one speech and she's gone already. We've come to the end of our podcast episode. I said this last time, but for real now, we'll have one more episode on book one, so stay tuned for that. We'll see Telemachus take Athena's advice and warn the suitors without much success, and we see two of the main suitors and gain insight into their personalities for the first time. Lastly, we see a brief glimpse into the most loyal of all servants, or really slaves, Eurycleia, who served as Odysseus's nursemaid or nanny and now takes care of Telemachus, who seems, in my 21st century eyes, rather ungrateful. Special thanks to these sources, Robert Fitzgerald's translation of Homer's The Odyssey and Merriam-Webster's Dictionary.